voice this morning. Psalm 159, verse 16 says, But I will sing of thy power, yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. We want to praise the Lord. Let's start out with the first song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. just a little bit different. Brother Sharp, would you open us in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to uh, meet with us today and bless the service? Amen. All right. We're going to continue here. We're on the third verse, right, Brother John? Third verse. All right. Welcome all of our live stream listeners as well. On the third verse.
second song, Ring the Bells of Heaven. to announcements and uh, keep things moving just as much as possible. And so, first of all, uh, Wednesday at 7 o'clock is our uh, evening service. We are going through the book of Proverbs here in the adult, uh, in the auditorium. And then, of course, on Wednesday, we have our master clubs for three-year-olds up through sixth graders. And then our teen group uh, also meets Sunday, uh, excuse me, meets Wednesday at uh, 7 o'clock. And um, so, we're Appreciate all of our young people. Had a great activity with the young people this past Friday. And a lot of good awards being handed out this past Wednesday. So appreciate all of you parents supporting uh, your children as they learn the Word of God and learn how to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And then uh, our regular scheduled events on Saturday. Our street ministry is at noon over uh, between Verizon and KFC in the Walmart area. Good turnout yesterday. And then our prayer meetings are Saturday evening. Ladies meet at 7, and the men meet at 8 o'clock. All right, let's go ahead and stand and sing our last hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. Peace, divine as well. 
while you're turning, I uh, just wanted to just, I guess, introductory, let you know that, um, you know, the Bible says that we're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth. And while I recognize that certainly that uh, some of these epistles, such as Jude, have some doctrinal implications toward the tribulation period, uh, we rightly divide the scripture. We don't chop it up and just, we understand that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Every text of Scripture has an application for us. Not all of those applications are doctrinal. Uh, Some of those are spiritual. Uh, Many of them are practical. And so all of the Word of God is for us, but not all of the Word of God is written to us. So having said that, uh, just uh, wanted to make sure that you understood that the text we're using today while certainly, uh, doctrinally, the book of Jude is uh, in the tribulation period, practically, it is definitely right where we are and where we're living today. And so it would be uh, wrongly dividing the Word of God to dismiss the value to us in the text that we're getting ready to read here this morning. The book of Jude, beginning in verse number 20, but ye, beloved... Building up yourselves on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference. And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh." Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. I want to preach this morning on the subject of making a difference. Father, we ask your blessings upon the service today. We ask for clarity of mind and focus But above all, we ask for the help of the Holy Spirit of God. We realize that this is your words and these are your truths. Help us to be good stewards. Lord, not men pleasers, not afraid of what men would think. Uh, Certainly not presenting any information here today for uh, the purpose of man's praise or uh, applause. But uh, Father, may we be centrally focused on honoring and glorifying you. Father, if we honor you with truth, then men and women will be helped. And I pray, Father, that you'd have your will and way in the service today. We pray, Father, that you would just uh, help with any uh, any spiritual oppression, any distractions that uh, certainly uh, Satan does not want the Word of God to find uh, a place in the hearts of men. So we pray now that you'd bless us today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Making a difference. Everybody, I guess for the most part, wants to make a difference. Nobody wants their life to count for nothing. Everyone, down deep in our soul, seeks a purpose. Now, a great cause of discouragement is when we get to feeling we're not making a difference. Sometimes we throw up our hands and we just think, what's the use? And when I think about that common thing, you know, the Bible says that There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. 
what you're going through today, I guarantee you there's probably somebody sitting very near you that either they're going through the same thing today or they went through it yesterday. Or perhaps maybe nobody near where you're sitting is going through what you're going through or went through what you're going through yesterday, but I promise you they're probably going to go through it tomorrow. It's just the world that we live in. It's human nature. Man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. We all are different, but we all go through very similar experiences in life. When I think about the frustration that I have, I I go through it from time to time thinking, what's the use? You know, Paul was always afraid of laboring in vain. You find that theme throughout his writings, lest we bestowed upon you labor in vain. No one wants to go to a lot of trouble trying to help people and then end up throwing up their hands going, it didn't do any good, so what's the use of even continuing to try? I always think about Elijah, and whenever I've been through my own personal pity parties, I can always relate to Elijah because in 1 Kings 19, verse number 4, this is after Elijah has slain all of the prophets of Baal. God has answered his prayer by fire. I mean, literally, he, I mean, he, he said a simple prayer and God just rained down fire, consumed that sacrifice. And all of the audience there on Mount Carmel recognized that Elijah's God was the true God and that Baal was a false God. Now, I don't know about you, but that just sounds like a great victory. Wouldn't you like to show up at one of the big universities where humanism and secular, uh, you know, all of this anti-God, and, and I don't even have time to go into all of it, wouldn't you just love to show up and have an Elijah Mount Carmel experience? And God answer by fire and all of the atheists and the agnostics and the skeptics recognize that, wow, we have been either deceived or, you know, you got to, you can't give them too much credit. Many of those are not just deceived, but they are deceivers. And, you know, I've been around this long enough to know that most people that have an anti-God agenda in their life, something happened in their past that they didn't get their way or something bad happened. And so they're not really atheists. They're just mad at God. And they think that it's their way of getting even with God by going against Him. And, and you know, it's like the, the child who doesn't get his way and holds his breath and says, I'm going to hold my breath until I die. And God is a wise God, and He doesn't do like parents would today and start coddling that child that's pitching a fit. God would do like what my mom would have done with me if I would have ever thought of doing such a thing. She would have said, okay, die. <laughs> Cause she knew I wouldn't, but you know, she wasn't, she, she wasn't going to cave in to my emotional fit. And that's the way that our God is. And really, to be quite honest with you, that's why many of this generation take issues with God is because God doesn't cave in to our emotional fits. He is God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, He doesn't change, He knows all things, and He is holy, and He is the Creator, He is the King, He is the authority. And certainly authority is a lost concept 
in modern culture and sadly even in modern Christianity. What did Elijah say? It says that he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am not better than my father's. I have not in this Bible, but I have in my old Bible, I have written in the wide margin right next to that, uh, something to the effect of, why did Elijah think that he had to be better than his father's? You know, Elijah's problem was, is he had an expectation that wasn't realistic. And so often we expect things to go a certain way in life, and when it doesn't pan out, what do we do? We um, we kind of throw that pity party and we think, what's the use? I'm not making any difference. Nobody made a bigger difference than Elijah did, but yet just literally not many hours later, he's saying, just let me die because I am a failure. That ought to go to show all of us how that the human mind and emotions, our human spirit can play tricks on us. And then add to that the fact that there is a real devil out there, and uh, he's whispering in your ear, and he's producing certain feelings that are not based on truth. How many times have I said it from this pulpit, and I hope that if the Lord tarries, I'll live to say it a thousand more times. Never trust your feelings. Trust the truth of the Word of God. Your feelings, your heart will lie to you, but the Word of God, the truth of it, it will guide you and it'll keep you safe. Now think about this phrase of making a difference. Making a difference. Are you thinking about it? If you really do think about the phrase, it means that you are making something different than what it was. And you know what that means, don't you? That means change, the thing that we all love so much, especially as we get older, right? When we're younger, change is not a big deal, but boy, uh, once you get about 45 or 50, every passing year, the, uh, the enthusiasm toward anything changing just starts going like this. It's like, no, we, we like things. I want tomorrow to be pretty much similar to what today is because I, I kind of want my comfort and I want my security. And so making a difference, if, if you're going to make a difference at all, you got to get past this notion that we're living our life and we want every day to be the same. If you're going to make a difference, then that means that tomorrow's going to be a little bit different than today was, and certainly today is a little bit different than yesterday. So when we approach this subject, if you're going to make a difference, I want to just draw our attention, a spotlight here on the text that we read, and I believe there's some things here in this passage of Scripture that will help us learn how we can make a difference. If you're going to make a difference, number one, if you look at verse number 20, you're going to have to build yourself. You're going to have to build yourself. Verse number 20, but ye beloved, building up yourselves on the most holy faith. Now, I have to admit to you here this morning, 
that my point sounds a little bit self-helpy, does it not? You're going to have to build yourselves, and certainly we live in the day of age of self-help. I can remember, um, and, and I've always been, especially in my adult years, I've always been the kind of person that I didn't necessarily have formal training or formal education in the areas that, that the things that I wanted to do, but I would figure out how to learn them, and I'll say more about that later on in the message today. But back in the day, if I wanted to learn about something, you know what I'd have to do? I'd have to go to the library, and I'd either have to, to grab some books. Usually, I'd grab a handful of books on whatever the subject is. I'd sit down on one of their tables, and I'd start gleaning through those books and figuring out which ones were worthy of me checking out. Because, you know, I didn't want to study this for 10 years. I wanted to get to the chase as quickly as possible. And so you'd have to go and you'd have to check out library books or you'd have to go to a bookstore and buy a book. And this was before you could do an Amazon book purchase and actually find the book through a search. We didn't have all of that internet and Google and all of the stuff that we have today. But you know what's interesting when it comes to books? I was going through, I've got a ton of books on my shelf in my study. And, and many of the, I, I say many of them, many of them I've, I've read, some of them I haven't read and I hope to read, and then others I've had many in there that I didn't necessarily have them on my to-read list, but I wanted to have them available just in case I needed information on that subject. Some of them were for counseling, or if somebody in the church comes and has a particular problem. I, I haven't read an entire book, but I know where to find the information on that particular subject, and I've got access to it. And I was going through all of those books in my library, and I discovered that literally, I mean, a bunch of them, I don't need them on my shelf anymore, because I've had them there for reference, and Sometimes if you're just looking for a particular part of a book, you can do a Google search on an author or a subject and you can actually just get the paragraph of that book that you want to read and you don't have to necessarily take up room on your bookshelf for that book. And so some of them I thought, you know what, this is taking up room, I need more room. And so I was able to cull through really a lot of books that not too many years ago, I would have never even dreamed of turning loose of that book. But now I think I've got the information other ways. And so certainly times are changing. And I can remember that self-help time period where everybody's writing self-help books, whether it be emotional needs, whether it be psychological needs, whether it be achieving your goal kind of needs, and self-help has been in vogue for a number of years. And so while this concept of building yourselves may sound self-helpy, it's not, because it's right here in our text. Now consider Acts 20 and verse number 32 where it says, and now brethren, Paul is speaking, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them 
which are sanctified. Notice that Paul says to these Christians, it's the word of his grace. It's the book, the Bible that is able to build us up. Time and life are not always favorable to a building. Have you ever went through the countryside and seen uh, dilapidated houses, old farmhouses that you just look and the roof is caving in? And, uh, you know, here in the last, oh, 10, 15 years, it's been real popular for people to buy dilapidated houses and renovate them and then turn around and sell them. They call it flipping houses. And so that's very common. But sometimes you drive through the countryside and you see houses that, you know what, that's not very flippable. That one just is more bulldozerable. And sometimes you wonder, why haven't they bulldozed it already? And you know, the truth of the matter is, is it's probably because that's where grandma and grandpa lived their entire life, and that's the family property, and we can't really do much with it, but you just hate to bulldoze it because that house used to be, I mean, that was a home where children were raised, where, I mean, now it's just dilapidated and probably full of rodents and snakes. But you go back not too many years ago, and there was the smell of biscuits in the oven, bacon in the frying pan. Isn't that what makes a house smell like home? That's what makes my house smell like home. You know, you can go during Christmas gift-giving season. You go to the department stores, and they have they have this whole area of all of these different perfumes and scents that you know that that women wear. I don't know about you, but I like it when my wife smells like bacon. <laughs> that is romantic, <laughs> preacher. You're weird. I know it, but. This is the way it is. Time and life are not always favorable to a building. Your, your, your building or your home may not be dilapidated like the one that I'm describing, but I guarantee you over time, wouldn't you agree the longer that you've been in a place, the more stuff you accumulate? The longer, I mean, you, you take people that, that live in the same home for 30, 40, 50 years, when they pass away, God help their children. I mean, you talk about work, and it's a chore, hauling off all that stuff, and you look at your parents or your grandparents' stuff, and you see all this stuff that was valuable to them, but you look at it, it's like, what do we do with it? It's not valuable to anybody else. Nobody's ever going to use it. And, you know, there's an emotional side that's difficult of taking your, your loved one's stuff and sending it to the goodwill. Or something that was your loved one's stuff that even smells like them and selling it at a yard sale and watching them drive out the driveway and thinking, should I feel bad about this or good about this? It's the same way in our Christian life. Time and life are not always favorable. Sometimes our, our spiritual life can get dilapidated because it's not in good repair. It's not been properly maintained. 
it's past the time of a good renovation or a good remodel. You know, there's times you live in a house long enough, you're going to find that it seems like just yesterday that you painted everything. But then you look at the calendar, it's like, no, that was 12, 13, 14 years ago. It's time for a new coat of paint. It's like, well, I just put those shingles on. Yeah, well, that was 20 years ago. It's time for new ones. And and all of those things, they, they have to happen or things are just going to start falling apart. And if you don't stay on top of those, then things are going to fall apart faster than you can get them back in repair. And it's the same way with your spiritual life, brothers and sisters. We have to continue to maintain our spirituality because time and life are not favorable to our Christian life. And you will, you will get all kinds of clutter that will build up in your life that really just makes it hard to even move around. It's hard to build yourself up when everything around you is just clutter and disrepair. Nehemiah had to deal with the same thing as he was, his endeavor was to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And it says in Nehemiah 4.10, And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there is much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. I mean, they're trying to lay blocks, but they can't even get those blocks where they need to go because all of the old blocks that were busted up and broken down from Jerusalem being ransacked, and they had to spend some time to clear the rubble before they could start rebuilding. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to build ourselves, then sometimes we've got to clean out some rubble, some past situations that are just lingering, that are cluttering up our lives, some things that we've just got to learn how to let go, some past hurts, some past failures, some past problems, all of those things, some past griefs, At some point, those will just clutter up our life when we need to be building and we can't even build because there's too much rubbish. Just turn loose of some stuff and clear it out so that we can build ourselves. And and, and notice here the text, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Listen, your faith, if you're going to build on your faith, your faith must be the faith. Let me say that again. Your faith must be the faith. Look at verse number three of the book of Jude. It says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith. doesn't mean being contentious, but it does certainly mean to contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Your faith has to be the faith. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all right? And so there's not your faith and my faith and your truth. If you go to the average uh, university today, they'll tell you things like this. Well, that's your truth, and I have my truth. Do you know if you're, and, and I'm speaking facetiously, if your truth 
contradicts my truth, then they can't both be truth. Amen? So we're living in a day and age where the younger generation have been exposed to redefine terminology so that they can believe whatever they want to believe and still feel good about it. There was a time in America where you could believe whatever you wanted to believe and do whatever you wanted to do, but you wouldn't necessarily feel good about it. Why? Because our culture was too inundated with Bible truth. And so the devil's been awfully slick here in the last 40, 50 years. He's just kind of started redefining a lot of terminology. And really, we're living in a day and age where modern Christianity is nothing anywhere close to what Christianity has been for the last 2,000 years. Some really crazy times, to be quite honest with you. So if you're going to build on your most holy faith, you've got to make sure that your faith is the faith. Now, the faith, it's the same faith that turned Paul the persecutor into Paul the preacher. Aren't you glad for the grace of God that can totally revolutionize your life? It doesn't matter what you are or what you've done. What matters is what God can do. God took the apostle Paul who was a persecutor of Christianity, and he made him a preacher of Christianity. Galatians 1, verse 23, But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth, watch this, the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. It is the one faith that turned Paul into the preacher. And then notice also here in verse 20, it says, building up yourselves on the most holy faith. And then notice the last phrase, praying in the Holy Ghost. Have you ever thought about that phrase? What does it mean to pray in the Holy Ghost? Sadly, the average Christian today, prayer is a checklist. Well, yeah, I, I, I did my prayers. I, I got through that. And really, it's no different than what most of the religions of the world are. Just, you know, make sure you do your checklist, and that'll be enough to appease God. But God's not interested in us keeping a checklist. God's interested in our heart. And when we pray, I want to encourage all of us, there needs to be a time when we get alone with God and we open up. It's hard for us to open up to people because people will hurt us. People will judge us. People will disappoint us. But God knows everything about us. There's no reason to even hide a thing. He knows what you've done. He knows how you feel. And He knows how you think. He knows what you think. And yet He still wants us to come to Him and to fellowship with Him. He wants us to worship Him. And listen, I've got prayer lists here that I keep in my Bible, in my Bible case of prayers that you call in, and we we publish that every week. And there are certainly times when we go down through that checklist of prayer requests and make sure that we pray for those requests. But I tell you what is essential to build us up in the most holy faith is to allow our prayer time to become more meaningful than just a checklist or praying over your food, and all of those are good things. They're all important. 
But getting alone with God, just you and God, and spending time thanking Him and praising Him, telling Him how much you love Him, thanking Him for loving you, thanking Him for the cross of Calvary, thanking Him for the creation, and just literally opening up our heart so that really we walk out of that prayer time feeling like we met with God and He met with us. Every prayer time isn't like that. But I will say this, if you will dedicate some time for the Lord and you will seek this idea, this concept of praying in the Holy Ghost, you'll be surprised at what God will do. He'll show up and He'll be close. He'll be real. And, and you'll, you'll look at your, you'll look at your watch and you'll think, Oh my goodness, I've been praying for 45 minutes and it seems like I've just been praying for five. Listen, when we pray in the Holy Ghost, it's not praying for 10 minutes and feeling like we prayed for an hour. When God shows up, we don't want to leave. We may have to leave, but I've had many a times where I've been alone with the Lord and it's like, Lord, I sure have enjoyed this time with you, but I got to go now. <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm glad that the Lord understands. Amen. Sometimes we have schedules, but anyhow, praying in the Holy Ghost is one of the essentials in building ourselves up. We've seen the word of His grace, the Bible. We've seen praying in the Holy Ghost. And when we consider this concept of building ourselves up, we would be remiss to not mention the fact that everything has to be built on a foundation. And folks, the only foundation of our life that's a viable foundation is Jesus Christ. Matthew 16 and verse number 18, Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he says, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's two different ways that this text has been abused by religion. The first is uh, certainly by the uh, probably the most popular Christian religion on planet earth, and that would be Roman Catholicism, that uses this verse to say that Peter is the rock that the church is built upon. But folks, that is not what Jesus is saying. If you back up, and we don't have time to study it this morning, but you're welcome to study it for yourself. If you back up a few verses, the subject at hand is Jesus going to the apostles and saying, whom do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say Elias and some say Moses, some say one of the prophets. And he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And so when Peter set the context, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus responded by saying, that upon this rock, Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, I will build my church. And in fact, Peter in his, in his uh, uh, epistle referred to Christ as the rock. Paul referred to Christ as the rock when he wrote to the church at Corinth. So the rock is not Peter. 
The church is not built upon Peter or the Pope. The church is built on Jesus Christ. I'll tell you a second way that this verse is uh, misused is people say that the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. But once again, the subject at hand is not Peter and is not the church. It's Jesus Christ. The gates of hell did not prevail against Jesus Christ. Acts chapter number 2 said that Jesus went to hell, but the third day he rose again. Amen? Amen. Now, if you hear somebody preach that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, don't, don't get all, all prideful and, oh, they're, they're wrong. Sometimes people, it's an honest mistake. But the fact of the matter is, is that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying he's the rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. The church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles, hold your place here. We'll be coming back, but go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. My first point is a lot longer, it's probably longer than all the rest of the points in my message. So we're going to get through this just fine, all right? 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Now, this is very relevant to us today. Paul says in verse 9, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed... How he buildeth thereupon, for other foundation can no man lay that than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Listen, it cannot be Peter, it cannot be the Pope, it is none other than Jesus Christ. There cannot be any other foundation, not for the church and not for your life. Now if any man, verse 12, build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire." Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. The only foundation is Jesus Christ. And you know what? We see here in this text that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, if you're saved, then you're eternally saved. If you are truly born again, you don't have to worry about going to hell. You're on your way to heaven according to the Word of God. But that doesn't mean, like some people falsely claim, that, hey, I got my salvation, now I can pretty much just do whatever I want, and everything's just peachy between me and God. That's not true, folks. We are going to stand before our Savior one day, 
and we're going to give an account of everything that we've done in our bodies. Now, you may be building your life, and you know what? Notice that there is wood, hay, and stubble. Do you know that you can build wood, hay, and stubble on the the foundation of Jesus Christ? You don't have to be a false religion or another religion that's building on something besides Jesus Christ. That's a totally different picture. Those people are lost. But saved people that are building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, we can still build wood, hay, and stubble. And when God puts, basically, when Christ puts our life through that fire, only what remains is what we will be rewarded with throughout all eternity. Now, I've never, I've never lost my entire home in a fire. I hope, by the grace of God, I never do. I've known some people, some loved ones, family members that have uh, had that happen. One close family member has had it happen twice. And, and, and I know that uh, the, the after effect of that is definitely, it's not pretty. It's emotionally wrenching just to say all of your stuff, everything that you've worked for, everything that was important to you, to just get out of the window and turn around in your pajamas and watch it all go up in flames and smoke. That's a pretty sad commentary. And I wonder how many of God's children will stand before the Lord one day and our life, you're not going to hell, you're going to heaven, but I guarantee you, if you're not building, if you're not truly building your life on Christ, and you're not doing it for the right reason, and you're not building yourself up in the most holy faith, then it's all going to go up in smoke. I, um, I've had the privilege, my, my wife and I, I should say, it wasn't just me, but uh, we as a family, we've had the privilege of building several houses. We built three before we moved here. The first one, I had a general contractor, but I did most of the work. I learned some things. I never did work in construction, just odds and ends jobs, working for 4 or $5 an hour, helping out for a day or two here and there, but really didn't know anything about being a construction worker or building houses. But uh, when I had that general contractor, I did a bunch of the work, and I just kind of, we'd learn as we'd go, and certainly made some mistakes. And then the second house that we built, uh, I didn't make some of the same mistakes that I made when I built the first house. And then when we built the third house, I didn't make the same mistakes that I made on the second house. And really, I, I would have to say that the third house that we built, as I look back, probably emotionally, it was probably kind of a quirk of my nature, probably the biggest reason that I wanted to build that house was not because I wanted a new house, but I think that somewhere deep inside of me, I wanted to correct the mistakes that I've made. I don't know if you're wired that way, but I, I'm weird about that. I, I, I'm one of these guys that when I make a mistake typing, I backspace everything back to the one. Anybody else like that? I just, everything after that, I you know, I know that I can just go back and correct just that one letter, 
but I'm weird about that. I just end up backspacing and then start where I made the mistake and then continue. So that may be weird, but Brother Chuck's weird too. You raised your hand, right? <laughs> but I tell you what, I, I learned how to build houses because there was a desire and there was a necessity. And um, nobody, I didn't have anybody to do it for me. I didn't have the financial resources to hire somebody else. And so basically, we had to do what we had to do. Uh, Learned how to draft and draw the plans by hand, not with a CAD program. Learned how, what size of headers needed to be for, to support the trust structure and just really had to, to dive in there and learn and understand and figure out how to make this wall work with this wall, how to transfer all of the weight of the roof and everything that mattered down to a foundation or a, a, a footing, I should say. And all of that played a factor. I had to learn how to do that. And you know what? I see Christians that just stagnate, that aren't willing to build and to grow because I don't know if they expect somebody else to do it for them. But I know one thing, that if you want something bad enough, you'll figure it out. And we don't see a lot of that. We don't see a lot of God's people just applying themselves today in a passion and a desire to grow spiritually. And so if we're going to make a difference, the first thing is we're going to have to, we're going to have to build ourselves. Secondly, number two, you're going to have to keep yourself. Keep yourself. Verse number 21, back in the book of Jude. It says here, keep yourselves in the love of God. Once again, it sounds a little self-helpy, but it's not. The issue here is keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now, I will say this. This is an act of the will. You're not going to, if God's saying keep yourself, then it's an act of the will, but it's not willpower. Now, I don't know that I know how to fully explain the difference. An act of the will is not always willpower. It's just like salvation. You have to respond to God's offer of salvation with your will, but you're not saved by your willpower. You're saved by the grace of God. Jesus does the saving, but it's an act of our will that receives Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now, the best way I know to describe this is this. I, I, I'm thankful for my wife. And I want to stay married to her for the rest of my life. But, you know, the best way to stay married to my wife is not while she's in the house to lock all the doors and windows and make sure that she never leaves. That, that just wouldn't make sense. You don't know my wife. If I locked her in the house, I would probably want to be in the shop. Eventually. So, you know, if you want to stay married, you don't, you don't do means like that with your willpower to make that person stay married to you. 
what do you do? You love them. You let that love grow and you treat them with love and with the right kind of care and kindness and compassion. And it's the same way with our relationship with God. Once again, it's not a checklist. It's not our human character and our willpower that, hey, we're going to do what's right and it becomes all mechanical. No, we keep ourselves in the love of God. That's the best way to keep the love relationship strong. And when the love relationship is strong, listen, you're, you're not, you're not going to want to wander away from the Lord because it's a wonderful love relationship. Notice here in this verse, it also says, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Jude is not saying that our eternal life depends upon uh, us keeping looking for Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that it depends on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, he's the one that does the saving. We're just supposed to keep ourselves in that right kind of relationship. Which brings us to number three. If you're going to make a difference, you're going to have to give yourself. Verse 22 through verse 23, some have compassion making a difference. Verse 23, others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Many Christians are willing to give money, time, and service as long as they don't have to give themselves. I don't know if you realize it, but money, time, and even service can be a substitute for giving yourself, giving your heart, if you will. They're okay with demands as long as they can fit them into their lives rather than fit their lives into the demand. Compassion makes a difference. Compassion is a major source of boldness. You know, there's times when the preacher has to say something that he really doesn't want to say. But if he cares about you, he's got to tell you what you need to hear rather than what you want to hear. Compassion demonstrates sincerity. Someone once told a prison chaplain, we don't care what you know until we know that you care. And you're not willing to tell us about hell, so obviously you don't care about us. Men need an earnest, urgent warning of hell and judgment. It's not judgmental, it's compassionate. Listen, if somebody's getting ready to head off of a cliff, and, you know, just their life is going to be just trashed in the rocks below, it is not compassionate to not interfere. It's compassionate to say, hey, whoa, stop, don't go that route. Not judgmental, it's compassionate. If a person doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're lost and they're on their way to a devil's hell. So often we think, well, I don't want to make them upset because, you know, I, they, I may mess them up. I may mess it up and then they go to hell. Listen, they're already on their way there. You can't mess it up. The only thing you can do if you do it with love and compassion, the only thing that you can do is help. And you know what? Somebody may get mad at you for telling them the truth today, but that same person will end up loving you tomorrow because they know that you cared enough about them to stick your neck out 
and to speak the truth. Notice here that the, the, the last part of verse number 23 says, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Can you imagine going out and getting filthy? I don't know how many of you have ever worked with cattle, but if you've ever worked at a dairy farm, you get pretty filthy. How many of you worked at a dairy farm? All right, a handful of you have. You get pretty filthy milking cows. I've been in the pit milking cows, and you know what? They're out there throughout the day. They're out in the holding pen, and they're laying around in some of that soup and muck, and they literally get stuff. They get stuff just their tails get saturated in soup. And I don't think I need to tell you what that soup is made out of. But there's one and two ingredients, number one and number two. And it's all over their tails. And so they're in the pit, and you're down here about tail level. And you're putting the milkers on, and then all of a sudden they decide to swish their tail. When that happens, you know you've been swished. And, you know, you, you do that. That happens several times. And then, you know, you go out and you're cleaning up the soup and the mess. One time it was winter. And literally there's about a foot and a half of snow on the ground. And so I'm, you know, we had this big squeegee like a push broom. And we'd be squeegeeing the holding pen, getting all that soup. And all that soup would go and it would drain into a big, like, concrete pit. And then, you know, during the, the, the spring, the guy I worked for, he would pump all of that into the honey wagon and then go out and spray it on the fields. Well, the pit was pretty full. This was toward the end of winter. It's pretty full. There's about this much snow all around it, including on the pit. And I'm having to walk by it, which there's a pretty good walkway where you can go by the pit. Well, the snow covers up everything, and I got a little bit close to the edge of the pit. Of course, I got rubber boots that go up to your knee, but as you're, you know, I'm, I'm walking along, and actually I'm on this side of the pit, and I'm walking along, and I just felt as I went through the snow, about half of my foot caught the edge, and then it does this. Only it didn't really do that. It was more like this. So I did keep one foot up here. I was able to reach over and grab the holding pin fence and pull this leg up out of the miry pit, as the Word of God says. And of course, you know, I didn't have duct tape around the top of my boots. It all filled in there. So what do you do? You go back into the milk barn, you hose it all off, try to dry it off with paper towels, put your foot back in there and go back to work. At the end of the day, you're pretty nasty. You're looking forward to taking a shower. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, what it would be like to take all of those dirty clothes off Go take a shower, I mean scrub up and hot water and just come out just squeaky clean and then put those clothes back on. 
You, that, would, that just seems preposterous. And yet, we're living in a day and age where the average believer is saved. They've had their shower, they're clean, but they walk around in the same old filthy garments every day. In fact, they seem to love it. They love it so much that they invite that filthiness into their church services and into their fellowship, and it doesn't make any sense. The, the Bible says here that we're supposed to hate the garment that's even spotted by the flesh. Men need Christians that have a testimony that validates their witness. If we're going to have compassion to make a difference, if we're going to save some with fear, warning them, pulling them out of the fire, hey, don't, you know, literally sounding the trumpet of warning, if we're going to do that, we've got to do it with a lifestyle that validates our witness. Not like Lot, who went and warned his children of the impending judgment of God, and his daughters and his sons-in-law basically just mocked at him. (laughs) Why? Because Lot was living a life vexed by the filthy conversation of the wicked. He was clean, but he lived his life in dirty garments. He had one foot in God and one foot in the world, and he was trying to make everybody happy. And in trying to make everybody happy, he made nobody happy. At least his children didn't respect him. I, You know, as a parent... And I know I'm speaking to many parents. The number one thing that you can give your children is respect. And I mean not just you respecting them, but being respectable so that they, you're better off to have your children respect you than to have your children like you. Because they can like you and not respect you, and it's not going to help them, not now and not tomorrow. You can have them respect you and not like you, and they may not like you today, but I guarantee you life has a way. They're going to go through all of the things that you warned them about and tried to help them. And hey, it may be when you're old and gray and close to your deathbed, but I guarantee you if they have any class or character whatsoever, they're going to start recognizing, wow, um, was I wrong? Thank you. We're being respectable, mom and dad. We're better off. We can help people if we have a testimony that validates our witness. In conclusion, number four, you have to commit yourself. Look at verse number 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory. Committing yourself means that we are trusting him. You don't have to hang on to your salvation. You don't have to, once again, have the willpower. You've just got to trust Him because Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this thing, this very thing, that He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You're not on your own. It's not all on you. It's On God, all you have to do is trust Him. Trust is not passive. 
It doesn't mean we do nothing. It means we do what we're supposed to do, but we do it with the right motive and the right mentality. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 127 and verse number 1. He said, Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Is the psalmist saying that we should never build houses? Is the psalmist saying that we should never put a watchman at the gate? Is he saying that we shouldn't have insurance, that we shouldn't have a security system? Is he saying all of those things? No. What he's saying is, do what you got to do, do what you ought to do, but when it's all said and done, lay your head on your pillow at night and get some rest. Because staying up all night worrying about something, if you'll trust God and put it in God's hand, He can do a whole lot better job building the house and keeping the city than you can. So why do we spend so much time just racking our nerves and stressing and sweating and tossing and turning when the Lord says, just, hey, do what you should do. Leave the rest to me. I got you. Trust means you labor, you build, you keep watch, but you do it without a bunch of human stress and worry. You can commit yourself to the Lord, or you can live like you need to be committed. The choice is up to you, because let me tell you something, self-reliance, in the end, it'll drive you crazy. I close the message here this morning with just wrapping this up. I hope that you get these points. You want to make a difference? Well, build yourself on the most holy faith. Keep yourself in the love of God. Show compassion toward others by telling them about Jesus and warning them of God's judgment. Do what you can do. Do what you should do. But ultimately, trust the Lord. This is God's formula, not man's formula. Not a self-help book. But this is God's way so that you and I can make a difference. I'll tell you what. There's a whole lot of difference out there that needs to be made. Let's make a difference. Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, remain seated with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. As the pianist plays softly, if God spoke to your heart here this morning and you'd like to come down to the altar and pray, then like to open up the invitation. Perhaps you'd just like to, right where you're at, make an altar and talk to God. Tell Him what is on your heart. Ask Him to help you. We Listen, there's, there's difference that needs to be made today. And it's God's people that can make the difference. We've just got to start putting these truths into practice, making application in our daily walk with God.
Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. I'd like to ask Brother James Childress, if you would, close us in prayer. When he's finished praying, then you are at liberty. God bless you. Hope you have a great afternoon.